0: Made for More is a series to help you discover Christ and unfold the way he desires us to live our lives. This young adult series has the next generation of Catholic in mind, discussing the importance of identity, knowing the Lord's will in our life, and living with heaven in mind. This series features local and national speakers, including Nathaniel Benavirsi of Exodus 90, Father Patrick Briscoe from the God's Planning Podcast, and Tulsa's very own Father Vince Fernandez, and so many more to come. So if you could share, like, subscribe, and most importantly, go out and make disciples. From us here at the Diocese of Tulsa Communications Office, we thank you. So uh, anyway, it truly is a pleasure to be with you all tonight. Uh, So as we begin, uh, let us bow our heads in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Direct, we beseech the Almighty God, all of our actions, that they may begin by thy holy inspiration, and be carried on by thy gracious assistance, that every prayer and work we undertake may begin in you, and by you be happily ended. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So because you can read, you can see on the little slide behind me that this talk is called Made in His Image living life with heaven in mind. Made in his image, living life with heaven in mind. And I want to start by thinking about the Sistine Chapel. So Father Jordan Zajac, who is a professor of English at Providence College and is one of the many friars dear to Caroline O'Connor's heart there. uh, Father Jordan was recently traveling with a few friars, and they were in Rome. And they happened to be visiting all kinds of holy sites in Rome. And I have to say that Rome is especially great as a Dominican friar, because the order has so much in Rome that's just fantastic. Like, St. Catherine of Siena's body is there. Don't worry about it. Her head's in a different place. But her <laughs> Catholic things, they're great, you know? Um, so, Catherine of Siena's body's there. Uh, our mother church, which Pope Honorius III gave to us in 1216, huh, pretty good. We've held on to it. Didn't lose it, you know, still there. Kept it up, didn't let the roof fall in. Uh, Santa Sabina, that's the Mother Church of the Order, that's been there that long. St. Dominic actually stayed there. We have our our famous university, St. Thomas Aquinas in Urbe, or the Angelicum, where Father Vince did some of his studies in Rome. So, So great places to see in Rome. Anyway, the brothers are there, and they go to the Sistine Chapel. And Father Jordan is standing there with a few other friars. And this gal, who is the perfect image of the ugly American, comes up to him, tennis shoes blonde hair, probably from Massachusetts, <laughs> says, shouts at him, do you know where the Sistine Chapel is? <laughs> They're in it. And she mispronounced it. So Father Jordan, just he's much more polite than I am. Father, Father Jordan just looks at her and says, well, well you're, you're here. This is it. And she says, huh, I thought it'd be bigger. OK. <laughs> and then she goes on to say, well, where's the, where's the, the, the thing? She does this with her fingers. Where's the, where's the thing? And he says, the, the creation of Adam? Yeah. And, she, and he goes on to say, it's right above you. So she looks up. And then she says, huh and walked away. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> Imagine that, standing in the Sistine Chapel, looking at the, the beautiful painting of the creation of Adam and not having any sense for what it meant, not knowing where it was, not knowing how to even pronounce the word, not knowing really what the painting even means. You look at the creation of Adam in this painting, you see... some some things that are extraordinarily important to the Christian vision of who the human person is, of how we were made. And we're going to talk about all of those tonight. But I just want to point out now the most important thing about this image so that if you ever find yourself in Rome, maybe you've already been there and seen it, so you're remembering this image, having been to the Sistine Chapel (laughs) and appreciated it. But realize, realize that God is reaching out to Adam and that God's hand is filled with power and is directly coming to Adam. And it's Adam's hand which is bent, which is struggling, in it's reaching back out to God. OK, so we're going to come back to that. So just planting a little seed there. OK, this talk, Made in His Image, is all about the human person. I think today there are two principal competing views for a bent version of humanity. So I'm a Dominican, and we like to be a little bit pugnacious. So I'm going to talk about things that annoy, annoy me. Number one, Marxism. <laughs> it's a huge problem. Why? Because for Marx, he's not interested in what the human being is in itself. For Marx, the human being is, is just an active power. It's just about doing things. It's just about, using, it's just about using the, I don't know how PowerPoint works, I don't know how to use this. But for Marx, it's just about using, about becoming. It's about taking human beings, not to discover what they really are, but to change them, to format an idea, to, to change them, to be adapted to something else. OK, and then I already gave my little game away. My second guy then annoys me, Nietzsche. Nietzsche, similarly enough to Marx, is not interested in, in what the human being is as much as what the human being can do. So for Marx, it's all about changing the human vision and becoming for Nietzsche. It's about the human person crafting his or her own identity through self-realization, and doing so without any reference to God, who is transcendent or above us. It's all about the power to become something. The will to power, in fact, is Nietzsche's central, Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's central principle. Consider that Nietzsche said this to his sister in one of the letters, and this quote is just haunting. Check this out, guys. If you want peace of soul and happiness, then believe. But if you want to be a follower of truth, then seek. It's So perverse. It's so twisted. Nietzsche, he says, if you want, to, if you want peace of soul then, and happiness, then believe. It's like Marx, the religion, the kind of opiate of the masses thing, right? If you want peace of soul, then believe. Just satisfy yourself with religion, with these ideas. But if you want to be a follower of truth, seek. You have to activate your will. You have to really become something. For Nietzsche, Christianity strips life of its fullest meaning. Christian morals are a perversion, right? The Christian vision of life, the gospel, is a weakness. It's a weakness to have mercy, a weakness to keep the weak alive, a weakness to treasure the little and the least. Think about how many people in our world believe one of these other visions of life. That presented by Marx, that presented by Nietzsche. Okay, one more fun, really one more really fun idea, is because we're talking about creation and the human person. This is from Stephen Hawking, the physicist. Even if there is only one possible unified theory, it is just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into equations and makes a universe for them to dis- to describe? The usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? (laughs) Well, the Catholic Church has an answer and a vision of life that is way better than Marx or Nietzsche. Way better than Marx or Nietzsche. And we should take these guys seriously, and we should come to know them. We should grapple deeply with the philosophies that they're proposing, because these are visions ultimately of life that are incompatible with the gospel. They are not ideas that can be reconciled to what we as Christian people believe. These ideas must be hunted down and rooted out if Christianity is to grow and spread. Okay, So we have to be sensitive to them. We have to hate them with a perfect hate. And we have to rid them from our society. Okay, Good, all right. So the Catechism says, <laughs> Why a universe? The Catechism says, because God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. God created things. God created the world. God made a universe because it delighted God to do so. And that's really all we know about it. We know that he did it. We know that he wanted it. We know that God is good and that God is merciful. And those are the only reasons we can come up with for why there should be a universe. Stephen Hawking couldn't come up with that. It's beyond the kind of mathematical and scientific principles he can operate. This is a philosophical claim. It's a view of human life that is something very profound, that is very rich, that is controversial when placed alongside people like Marx and Nietzsche. The Catechism goes on to say, of course, For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. The Sistine Chapel, God reaching out to man. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men, scattered and divided by sin into the unity of his family, the church. If you want to memorize something this week, that'd be pretty good the first couple lines of the Catechism. Because this is another way of expressing the theory of everything that is, the theory of everything, the the theory of why there is a world as opposed to why there isn't a world. Okay. Last summer, I promise this talk is not just about places that I've been uh, or places my friends have been in the case of Father Zajac and the Sistine Chapel. Um, But this is a picture of the sun rising in Acadia, Maine. Have any of you ever been there? To Acadia, Maine? Of course, East Coast, Coast, classic. Uh, It is extraordinary. Oh my goodness, it's so beautiful there. Cadillac Mountain in Acadia is the first place in the continental United States that the sun touches in the morning. It's so beautiful. So I was acting as a chaplain for a focus uh, event, a focus um, formation program called Summer Projects. uh, we would get up in the mornings uh, occasionally when I could convince them to. Actually, the students were pretty ready to go. When they, it was more like when they could convince me to. We would go out and uh, go sunrise spotting and uh, oftentimes offer mass at this, at this precious moment. John Paul II wrote that sunrise and sunset are not anonymous moments in the day. They have unmistakable features. The joyful beauty of dawn, he goes on to say, and the triumphant splendor of sunset follow the cosmic rhythms that deeply involve human life. What a great quote. Bottom line sunset, good. <laughs> helps, us th- helps us think of God. As St. Augustine once jokingly asked, uh, what was God doing before he created the world? And do you know St. Augustine's answer in the joke? Making hell for people that ask too many questions. <laughs> okay. Well, of course, God wasn't doing anything before time, strictly speaking, because there was no time. So God was just being God. And he was, as the catechism told us, infinitely perfect in himself. What was God doing properly then, we should ask? God was knowing and loving himself. That's what God was doing in the Trinity. That's what God does all the time in the Trinity, knowing and loving. So before the world began, that was was the cosmic rhythm as John Paul II would have us point to. We can see the knowing and loving and the joyful beauty of dawn, the triumphant splendor of sunset. Light, we might argue, is the beginning of the unveiling of the mystery, the pulling back the curtain to come to know God. The Second Vatican Council taught in Dei Verbum that in his goodness and wisdom, God chose to reveal himself and to make known to us the hidden purpose of his will. So we don't have to like guess at it. Marx and Nietzsche are guessing, but we're Christians. We believe that God is telling us (laughs) these things, that he's revealing to us who we are and what the plan for our life is, That that he's bothering to tell us this because of the way that he has made us, because of the order of the cosmos, because of its splendor, because of his goodness. All of this points to God's plan for us. Through this revelation, the council continues, the invisible God out of the abundance of his love, speaks to men as friends and lives among them so that he might invite and take them into fellowship with himself. That's pretty bold. God, who is knowing and loving himself, before time began, ultimately, as we will see, I will say this several times tonight, wants us to join him in this act of knowing and loving. It's pretty great. Miniature schnauzers, however delightful they are, don't do that. They don't know and love God the way that we do. Uh, They have those little beards. And when they're frustrated, they turn their little ears at you. But they don't know and they don't love. They don't have these faculties, these highest faculties of the human person. And they don't share those faculties in common with God. And they can't use those faculties to be drawn back through creation to God. So there's something different about us, we who are made in God's image. This is a, a really beautiful painting by a couple of Dutch masters. It's a depiction of the original sin by Jan Bruegel de Elder. I, I can't say his name. That's just terrible. Um, and Peter Paul Rubens, I can say that one. Um, and uh, the thing that I love about this painting is it gives us a sense of the, the dynamism of creation. I think one of the problems with philosophies like Marx and Nietzsche, is that they look, just about, they look just at the human person and what the human person can get out of creation instead of pausing to marvel at creation and to see the human person's place in it. Gaudium et Spes says, another document of the Second Vatican Council, sacred scripture teaches that man was created in the image of God, is capable of knowing and loving his creator, and was appointed by him as master of all earthly creatures. What is man that you should care for him, the psalmist writes. You have made him little less than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have have given him rule over the works of your hands, putting all things under his feet. That's such a beautiful line from the Psalms. Um, My sister has two little boys. Um, Their names are Gabriel, Alexander, And Jude Thomas. So any of you you are thinking about names, I recommend any of those. They're good ones. Um, They're Christian names. um, So that's great. I was really hoping that Jude Thomas would be Jude Thaddeus. um, But my brother-in-law didn't go for it. My sister was pushing for that, too. I don't have any claim to have any stake in the name game. These are not my children. Uh, (laughs) But uh, that's not going to stop me from giving an opinion about them in Tulsa. So anyway, uh, little Gabriel. Um, is is m- most remarkable because if you line up a picture of Gabriel and then of me and then of my father and then of my grandfather, it's breathtaking. Genetics are really cool. <laughs> like you, you look like your parents, um, most of us. And in the case of little Gabriel, it looks like someone got very excited by using a 3D printer and made a, li- <laughs> made a little living human being out of a 3D. Like, it's weird. You just line up the pictures of all of us when we're toddlers, and we all look like photo. It's amazing how similar we are. Um, in fact, I had a friend who was staying with me one time in college, uh, and she was watching uh, me get my coffee in the morning. So I got up, I rolled out of bed, and uh, put, you know put on a robe, went to the kitchen went straight to the coffee machine, poured the coffee, stopped, took a sip, turned, looked at the water, and then went out to the deck. And a couple minutes later, my father got up and did the exact same thing. <laughs> Bathrobe, right to the coffee machine, poured the cup of coffee, sip, looked at the water, then right out to the deck. And then we sat there in tandem, in silence, looking at the lake, drinking our coffee. And she, she, Laura loved this. She thought it was so funny we look like god not in a physical way not because we have jesus genetics going on in fact we all look very different even in this room so we know we know that when we say we look like god when we're talking about the image of god we know it can't be the physical appearance we resemble god in a higher way in this faculty as we have said of knowing of thinking that is of knowing of thinking of having the intellectual powers of soul and of loving of having the power of the will so when we talk about love, when we use it in this kind of poetic way, knowing and loving, we, re- we really mean the will, the ability to choose, to make a moral decision, um, the ability to resist stopping at every Starbucks, because we don't need that many iced lattes, even though we want them all. Okay? And the will allows us to kind of curb ourselves in that way. In obedience to the intellect, which tells us if you drink that many ice lattes, you might turn into one. Um, <laughs> Catherine of Siena says this. What made you establish man in so great a dignity? Certainly the incalculable love by which you have looked on your creature and yourself. You are taken with love for her. For by love you have created her. By love you have given her a being capable of tasting your eternal good. Yes. A t- uh, being capable of tasting your eternal good. Again, miniature schnauzers cannot. They have a little beard. They have little ears. But they can't taste eternal good. They're not, God is not taken for love with them in the same way that he is taken for love by human beings. You know why? Because miniature schnauzers don't go to mass. <laughs> they, can't, they can't commune with God the way that we can. They can't think about God the way that we can. And if they did think about God the way that we can, we would know, because they would be telling us. OK, enough about miniature schnauzers. For Aquinas and Dominicans uh, following him, say, hey, that was pretty good. We're like 20 minutes into this talk before I really started doing the Thomas thing, OK? A little credit here. You got some Father Patrick stand up before we, before we got to the Thomism, before we got to thinking about St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian of the Dominican order and the great theologian of the church, for that matter, says that the image of God in man is by reason chiefly of his intellectual nature and is perfected by the image of recreation, that is grace, and by the image of glory. So we'll get a little bit into that. But I want to start really with this idea that, that the imago Dei, the image of God, consists chiefly in our intellectual nature. Okay, so I'm just going to put that out there and we'll, we'll come back to that. What we want to have as we consider all of this creation, we want to have a balanced theological anthropology as Aquinas does. Because Aquinas helps us to think about God, theocentric. He helps us to think about the world as it is, reality as it is, the cosmos, cosmocentric. And human beings as we really are, anthropocentric. And if we fail to keep all those three things in tension, we lose track of the image in which we were created. Because the whole point of being an image right, is that we're, we're thinking about God because we, we look like God. And we're able to go from, from ourselves to God based on the traces of him that he left uh, both in us and in creation. Okay, So we, we need to focus on all three of these. And I'm giving you these, these points because it helps us balance ourselves against some of those wrong ideas that we're finding so often in the world. So theocentric, we, we understand man as coming from God not just an amalgam of matter that was produced randomly that science has no answer for. We, un- we understand that all creation comes from God. That's what it means to have a theocentric focus, to say God is at the midst of this. So I, I joked uh, that I would go to St. Pius uh, to the little school, which was at my first, my first parish, was St. Pius V in Providence, Rhode Island, and it had a parish school there. OK, there's the context you need for this story. Uh, so I would joke that I would go to St. Pius School and tell the little, talk to the little children about God. Um, and to make this point that all of creation is coming from God, I would say things like, do you know that God is thinking about you at all times, always sustaining you in existence? This is cool, right? Like, creation wasn't just like a, a one-time thing. Like, God is holding you in existence constantly. This is against the thesis of the watchmaker God. Right, that creates the world and then like, gets bored with it or forgets about it or something and leaves it alone. No, uh, the, the proper right Catholic understanding of God is that he's always and everywhere holding everything in being. And this is the follow up and really fun to say to little kids. And if God would stop thinking about you, you would not only die, you would cease to exist. You would be annihilated, <laughs> which is worse than death. Because even when you die, you're a separated soul. Awaiting the resurrection. Okay, sometimes they thought that was really fun. And other times they were, like, horrified. (laughs) Because they've had experiences of their parents forgetting them. And they think, oh, no. God is going to forget about me. I'm going to be annihilated. Okay, so we need, you see how important this principle is. The eccentric. God is everywhere holding creation in existence. That all of creation comes from God and is returning to him. He is its source and sustainer. Okay, God. If you don't believe in God, you're doing this wrong. And we have to talk to people about that. Okay, Cosmocentric, that man fits into this larger context of nature and materiality. So this means we are stuck in this complex uh, rhythm of causality and dependence. We affect the environment. We are responsible by Genesis for the goods of the Earth. Um, If you leave your cat for too long and don't feed it, when you come back, Kitty is angry at you for not having fed her, okay? So we we know that that we cannot abstract ourselves from the the surroundings of the Earth. Um, Take the weather, for example. Like, if we could, we would turn down the heat a little bit in Tulsa (laughs) because it's very hot out there, but we can't do that. Um, There are things beyond our control and so, what belongs to us to maybe not turn the rectory air conditioning down to 64? I'm, I'm not saying that happened where I was last night, but I would like it to happen, so consider that a hint. And you can maybe do make it. Made. But, uh, but there, there, are way, there are ways that we're subject to, to the world outside of ourselves, things that we can't control in the cosmos, that we, that we ourselves, the human person, cannot be abstracted from this larger dependence on, on the causality of nature, okay? Um, if all of if you know if there's a great if there is a great if there's a great, uh, there's a great um, absence of rain uh, if there's a great drought, all of the crops that we make things out of uh, will cause you know lack of food it will cause lack of other material goods. We joke I'm from Indiana originally. We joke that there's more than corn in Indiana. That there are soybeans too, um, and soybeans are great because you can make anything out of them because they're basically plastic. So, uh, but if, but if all the soybeans die, we won't be able to make make cool things out of plastic. Okay, so we're subject to the to this greater cosmos. Okay, and finally, the anthropological, the anthropocentric focus um, views all theological topics um, through the understanding of human reality. So. This, this reproach, um, this element emphasizes who we are and what we're capable of. And the point here that we have to keep in mind is that human beings are the creature, that we are not the one who made the universe, that we are subject to the laws of the one who made it. Right. So to understand our limits in the face of all of these things that are beyond us, the cosmos, God, um, helps us to balance our, our own view of ourselves. OK, just a few more thoughts about creation um, that help us to understand, oh, goodness, this little thing is getting very excited here. You're, you're very jumpy. Maybe I should use the, the little arrows. Anyway, um, another lovely picture of Eden. You can see the, the humans are up there, uh, sort of by the tree. And I like this image because unlike most images of Adam and Eve, um, where the human beings are front and center here, they're kind of off in the distance. And you see the, you see the magnificence of creation. I think it's a more more balanced view. This is by John Bruel the Elder, another Dutch master. And it's titled, get this, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> That's very creative. OK. Uh, in, the garden, in the garden, all of, all of this was harmonious. Um, human beings lived in harmony with the rest of the cosmos. They lived in harmony to God. Um, in the garden, the original justice allowed it, us to be in right relationship with God, to be in right relationship with the created world, which was below us. Within ourselves, all of our passions were ordered to the intellect uh, in, a, in a proper way. We were, we were masters, even of ourselves, in a way that we're not now, after the fall. And I think that's really, that's really important to remember. Um, Father Bonaventure Chapman, who's um, one of the other Friar hosts of the God's planning podcast, of which I'm a part, um, Father Bonaventure and I did an episode recently that has come out, is coming out, oh, cool, You might get a spoiler, um, about what we think the greatest heresy in modernity is. And I said, I think it's that people no longer believe the church is holy um, because there's a, they're there because of what we've suffered uh, through and, through and uh, connected with the church in the modern world. Anyway, Father Bonaventure said no. He thinks the great heresy is um, the lack of understanding of original sin, the disbelief in sinfulness. So you can choose your fighter and listen to that episode. <laughs> whether it's the holiness of the church or um, sin and and the original sin. But the point is that original sin took all of this and introduced disorder, that it was balanced and harmonious, and that the world as we know it, even ourselves as we know ourselves now, um, is broken, that we experience brokenness. And we as Christians have to be upfront about that when we're talking about knowing the image of God, um, because otherwise it looks like we're presenting, if we skip over that part, it looks like we're presenting a thing that doesn't exist, <laughs> that we can always be perfectly knowing and loving. Well, we can't, because sin has been introduced into it. So yeah, there are difficulties. There's, there are profound experiences of, of, of trial and of suffering that were not part of the original plan, but that we know now because all of it is broken. OK, so now I want to rant a little bit about this knowing and loving. <laughs> for, again, for, Aqu- for Aquinas, the greatest of human faculties is knowledge. So sometimes this is a hot take. You ready? Everybody hold on to your seat. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about head knowledge and heart knowledge. Who's heard that? Like I, know, I know in my heart's a thing. OK, that's bunk. It's bogus. This is some, this is some, this is some like Aquinas straight out of the fire hydrant. No, there is only head knowledge. There's only what can be held in the intellect. And the will is subject, the will, the heart, loving, Is subject to the intellect, right? Think about it in in these terms. Um, When you decide who you're interested in romantically, there is a kind of movement of heart, right? There's the fluttering and the like. um, Sorry, it's been a while. Uh, (laughs) It's like like, you know, you sort of lose your train of thought, and you know, there's that movie you're drawn out of yourself. Okay, so so everybody knows what it's like to fall in love, Um, but ultimately that decision is going to be pursued because you decide with your mind whether or not this relationship is going to be right for you. You make a choice. You say, nope, that person is from Massachusetts and she'll never want to live in Tulsa. Uh, I can't do it. Uh, you know, or you, or you, assess, you assess relationships by any, by any number of means. Um, so we know that the, the intellect guides these things. It belongs to the intellect to inform the passions, which has consequences in the way we live our Christian lives here and now. It means it belongs to us to do things like study, to inform ourselves about the faith. OK, you see, this is really, really some big Dominican stuff. We love a good book. We just love it. We can't help ourselves. Um, and it can, seem that, it can seem that this invitation to activate this highest faculty of the human person is beyond all of the view, um, and that it's only reserved for people that wear white sails around. Um, but it's not. You were created with a heart to love and a mind to know. You were created for this. That's why learning something is so deeply satisfying, like that kind of innate curiosity that draws you down a YouTube rabbit hole. And you're like, oh my gosh, I was watching four hours of videos. Like I meant to go to bed, but it's 2 o'clock in the morning. And here I am wondering about all of these things. Okay, well, because you were made with a mind that desires to know Aristotle, the pagan Greek philosopher, was right about this. All men, he begins his metaphysics, all men, he says, by nature desire to know. And when that faculty is not pursued, when it's not fed, that's when things get weird. That's when you start you know, buying more cats and <laughs> wondering whether or not you should feed them. No, so, the, so it belongs to the intellect to command the heart and the lower passions, to inform them. Okay. This is what it means for the human being to be ta- for us to be talking about the human being is created in the image and likeness of God, a mind to know and a heart to love. And that heart is directed by the intellect, and that a rightly ordered mind uh, will save lots of problems <laughs> in life, um, lots of heartbreak. It can protect you from a lot of things. And the most important thing it can do is it can orient you to God, because you can think about God. And so Dominicans, in our theological tradition, Use the language of contemplation for this act of thinking about God. And so you can hear that word contemplation, and you can think like, Buddhists, incense, mysterious Eastern music. And you can think, that's beyond me. No, it's not beyond you. It's thinking about God. That's what the act of contemplation is. And it's nourished by studying, by learning about God. Saint Teresa of Avila, not a Dominican, Okay, (laughs) So just to provide other witnesses, your honor. Um, Saint Teresa of Avila, Carmelite, said that she didn't pray for years. Ooh, that's bad. She's a Carmelite nun, isn't that what they're for? She didn't pray for years. All she did was read books, and it was enough. It sustained her. Pretty good, we should think about that. A heart to love, a mind to know, OK. But man, enticed by the evil one, abused this freedom of knowing and loving. At the very beginning of history, we talked about this sort of ominously, that we succumb to temptation. We did what was evil. And because of that reason, we are divided in ourselves. OK, what does this mean? It means that we cannot know even ourselves completely. So when you're thinking about the horizon of your life and you're saying, well, I just don't know if I should marry this person. I just don't know if I should become a Dominican friar or sister. We have girls, too. Okay. <laughs> The answer to the latter two is always, yes, you should do those things, it's great. Um, but, but when you say, when you experience this disorder, this confusion in your heart, and you say, well, where, where is this? Why, you know, why, why should I feel so torn even within my own heart? It's because of the effects of sin, that we are divided in ourselves, that we can't even know ourselves. And that's why we get broken ideas, bent ideas, as Lewis calls them in the space trilogy, bent ideas about um, ideas like that which Marx and Nietzsche provide. Okay. C.S. Lewis has a charming story um, about a man who was born blind that has a surgery to see named Robin. And Robin, ooh, gosh, this thing, sorry, guys. Robin um, goes around trying to to find out what light is. It's the most amazing thing. um, And he can't get anyone to describe it to him. And he's very frustrated with his wife because she can't tell him when light is. She she points to light bulbs, which my little niece can do, by the way. She's almost a year old. You ask her, Lena, where's the light? She goes. Oh. She points to the light bulbs. It's amazing. Anyway, in the story, in the story, the the man who was born blind, who has a surgery and now can see, uh, doesn't understand the concept of light, and no one can convince him of it. So he's wandering around, and the story has a really dark ending. It's pretty wild. He comes into uh, he he comes upon this person who's painting. And uh, Robin asked him what he's doing. These are the quotes on the slide behind me. Doing, said the stranger with a certain lighthearted savagery. Doing? I'm trying to catch light, if you want to know, damn it. Good God, so am I, said Robin. Oh, you know too, do you, said the man. And yet this is the only sort of day when you can see light, solid light, light you could drink in a cup or swim in. Look at it. So the artist has a kind of understanding of light that Robin doesn't have. Um, Robin then goes to pursue uh, light, and he steps into a cloud and falls off a cliff and dies. What? Exactly. (laughs) It's a totally wild story. It's a totally wild story. I bet you you did not see that ending coming, did you? You thought I was going to tell you something fluffy. No, I'm going to warn you about the dangers of getting this wrong, of the importance of the intellect. Um, because if you don't if you don't have the fun, if you don't have the fundamental concept, you'll be you'll be surrounded in the darkness, and the next thing you know, you'll be stepping off a cliff like Robin, in search of light. Okay, so again, just a quick comparison here. I really love these terms. This is from the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., that compares the, the kind of dominant secular view and the Catholic Christian view. And what we're doing at this point is we're setting up the rest of the talks about the Christian moral life in this series which depend on getting these foundational principles absolutely right. So in the, in the Catholic view, we'll start with the correct view first, um, because that's fun. In the Catholic view, I am my soul and my body. I am these two great faculties of knowing and loving which exist in my soul, but I'm also my flesh. Um, and we know that because you don't say, that's my finger as if it were you know, separate from you. When someone grabs your, your, your finger, you say, that's me. You know, they pinch you and you say, ow, you hurt me. Not, That was my hand which belongs to me. No, it's a part of me. I am my soul and my body. I am a creature, right? we're driving this point home about this theocentric element. That my existence and my nature as a human person are the intellectual gifts of God who is good and who has loved me into existence as the person I am. I am not the sort of thing that made myself. I'm dependent on someone else to have made me. I am part of creation, right, the cosmocentric element. I view the natural world, including myself, as having an order that must be respected. I didn't make it this way, but I fit into it in a certain way. And I know when when I'm violating those terms, if I'm being honest. My body is designed by God and helps me to understand God's plan for my life, which is why we use this term, the image of God. Because by studying it, by thinking about who we are, we're able to to come to know something about the one who made us like him. Now, God is obviously infinitely beyond (laughs) where we're at. OK, so it's only an analogy. My primary identity is that of a son or daughter of God. That's who I am. When I say I'm made in my image, that's the claim, that there is nothing, no, no political ideology, no undergraduate institution, no state, no nothing that is more important to me than my identity as, a son, as that of a son or daughter. But compare this to the, the dominant secular view, which we see now. I am my soul or my body, ironically, there's this rejection in the body. And people say, oh, I'm only my mind and whatever I invent myself to be. Or people say, I'm self-defining. I can decide what it means to be me. I have no nature to direct or limit my choices. That's, that's Nietzsche, just the will, just what I choose. That's all that is. That's raw, applied Friedrich Nietzsche. The natural world is a vast organic reality with its own natural order. Humans increasingly respect this natural order and reject its exploitation. Okay, that one's actually pretty okay. We don't don't have too much to object to there. My body is an amazing machine, which I am entitled to use as I please. Nope. There is no plan for my life other than the one that I make. Definitely not. (laughs) Made in the image and likeness of God, which means you are made for something, which we're about to really dive into in our remaining time. I am free to determine my own identity. Receiving my identity from another threatens my autonomy. That's Marx. Whew. Okay. Okay. but ultimately, as we said, we can't even know ourselves because of the brokenness. We can know ourselves only by knowing Christ. This beautiful image, by the way, is made by a young girl named Ivanka Demchuk. We've corresponded a little bit. She has a shop in um, Ukraine. She's still making things. Um, A woman of incredible faith, uh, despite the current circumstances of war, um, which so mark her reality. Anyway, her art is really beautiful. You should check it out. Ivanka Demchuk. The truth is, the Second Vatican Council teaches us that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. Only through Christ do we come to understand ourselves. Christ, the final Adam, by revealing the mystery of the Father and his love, reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Okay, so that's kind of jargony and technical. It makes you sound really smart if you say it really quick. But what does it mean? Christ tells us who the Father is. (laughs) Christ tells us who the Father is, how to love him, and in so doing, tells us who we are, how we can know the Father, and how we can love the Father. So Jesus reveals to us this horizon of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Where do we get this idea? Well, from Saint Paul, right? It's in the New Testament that the first Adam, the old Adam, was dead, and from the new Adam, we receive life. From the old Adam, we receive sin and the curse of sin, which is death, the wages of death, the wages of sin. Um, And from the new Adam, Christ, the last Adam, we receive life. Okay, so that's pretty great. This Christ teaches us the way to be happy (laughs) in a pretty extraordinary way. Um, This does not mean happiness in the sense that I will always feel good. um, Because remember, it's not about heart knowledge, which is fake and bogus and bunk. (coughs) It's about head knowledge. It's about the intellect. Uh, Jesus teaches us what will really make us happy. And Jesus gives us a great set of moral laws to guide us in this. This is why the Beatitudes are so central to Christian living. Made in the image and likeness of God means we were made a certain way, and there are only certain things that are going to make us happy. Now immediately you say, whoa, Father, you're telling me that if I do certain things, I can't be happy. It sounds like you're limiting my freedom. Yes, but I didn't limit your freedom. God did, because he made you a certain way. So is that a curse? No. It does mean, though, that we should learn from the things that don't make us happy and stop doing them and turn instead to the gospel way of life that Jesus offers us, which will make us happy. John Paul II puts it this way. He says, the limitation of one's freedom might seem to be something negative and unpleasant, but love makes it positive, joyful, and creative. Freedom exists for the sake of love which is pretty cool. Um, so what does this mean? This means that the limitation of freedom gives the and of life meaning. So anyone who has young children knows this, um, that when you get up in the middle of the night, my sisters tell me, <laughs> you definitely realize that your life, now that you have a child, is not the same as it was before you had a child. Like something exists there that has limited your freedom. Uh, you can't stay out at night, or you will really pay. Uh, because the little crying baby will wake you up and demand things of you, that it be fed and have its diaper changed, and so forth. The limitation of this freedom might seem at first something negative and unpleasant, but love makes it positive, joyful, and creative, which is why people say the most important thing that ever happened to them was becoming parents, which is why people say, people who put on sailcloth and take new names say that joining a religious order, which curtails their freedom, is the most important thing that ever happened. To them, it is. Uh, That it's not a limitation of our freedom, but a flourishing of who we really are, who we were made to be, just like the Mumford and Sons song sings. (laughs) Okay, and what's really cool about the Beatitudes is they speak to all the negative desires that won't satisfy us. They're correctives to all of the fake desires, right? So we're going to truck through them real quick because it's really fun to do. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the desire for wealth, right, that we all have. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Voluntary poverty is awesome. I don't own anything. It's great. No money, no problems. <laughs> I, all I've done in the last two days is spend Father Vince's money. It's been <laughs> fantastic. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the earth. We desire conquest. And if you don't think you desire conquest, Ask yourself what it was like the last time you weren't in control of something. We want to be in control of things deeply. But the meek, being meek, teaches us that it's OK to let it go. Jesus is telling us that. He's offering this corrective to our heart. Blessed are, the, are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This speaks to our desire for wanting life to be painless. We want things to be pain. I'm complaining about the weather in Tulsa. That's how little I like pain. Clearly, I'm not someone interested in jogging. That causes pain. No way. Um, People still jog, right, maybe running, whatever. Um, No, but we we don't like being uncomfortable. And this is especially true of Americans, because this is the wealthiest, most affluent society that human beings have ever lived in the history of ever. It's true, science. Um, But we we desire painlessness. St. Teresa of Avila assures us, though, another great, see, look at how many Carmelites I'm quoting. Well, it's the same one again. St. Teresa Teresa of Avila assures us that all life's sufferings from the perspective of eternity will turn out to be no worse than a bad night in an inconvenient hotel. That's pretty good. I hope that's true. We desire desire painlessness, but Jesus says, no, Uh, you will be comforted. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for justice, For they shall be satisfied. We desire self-contentment. We want everything to be just kind of provided for and to be stable. And this, I think, is one of the worst sins of our day. Peter Kreeft says this. He, he, He uses such a great quote from Kierkegaard. Listen to this quote from Kierkegaard. Let others complain that our age is wicked. My complaint is that it is wretched, for it lacks passion. Oh, this is so good. Men's thoughts are thin and flimsy like lace. They are themselves pitiable like lace makers. The thoughts of their hearts are too paltry to be sinful. For a worm it might be regarded as a sin to harbor such thoughts, but not for a being made in the image of God. Even, the, oh, it's so good. Even their lusts are dull and sluggish, their passions sleepy. They do their duty, these shopkeeping souls. They think that if the Lord keeps a careful set of books, they may still cheat him out upon them. This is the reason my soul turns back to the Old Testament and Shakespeare. Those who speak there are at least human beings. They hate. They love. They murder their enemies and curse their descendants. They sin. <laughs> Good quote, huh? No, it's fun. No, but like in modernity, there's just like this, this contentness, this passionlessness. And I think that's the rotten flesh. Where is, our, where is our actual lack of passion? Outrage consists now in posting an Instagram post. Wow. Really changed the world there. <laughs> Woo. No, but uh, we, 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 we're, we're just so, uh, we're so, we're people that lack passion. Mm. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This speaks to our desire for justice. We want everything to equal out in a one-to-one ratio, if, if x, then y. We want everything to be balanced out. Well, that's not how God works because God created mountains and valleys. He created deserts and rainforests." <laughs> like, the world, the world and the experience of our life is just more diverse than that. When Pope Francis inaugurated the Jubilee Year of Mercy, all of us Dominicans were very hopeful that the subsequent year would be the Jubilee Year of divine justice. And we could then celebrate Divine Wrath Sunday. <laughs> and we would put on our capes and have a nice inquisition. <sighs> but that's not not what the Pope did, and (laughs) it's not really the gospel either. Um, Mercy as we experience is the experience of love when we deserve it the least. And all of us know this, and this counteracts our our desire for a strict justice. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. This is about our desire for sex, for sexual pleasure. Think about this image that Lewis gives from from the four loves, right? Um, when two lovers are experiencing a, a kind of false love they turn inward on themselves. What does this look like? It looks like that scene in Lady and the Tramp, right? Where the two puppies are munching on the spaghetti and they're kind of looking deep into their puppy eyes and the whole universe around them fades because there's only the two lovers gazing at each other. That's fake. That's not the Christian view of love because the Christian view of love is the two lovers as friends going side by side to the horizon of the infinite, which is the other <laughs> beyond them." The best image I have of this is a proposal that was concocted by the first couple, one of the very first couples I'd married. Uh, they used to go for runs on the beach, not jogs, runs, <laughs> on the beach. And uh, the proposal that this, uh, uh, that this hopeful um, groom had arranged for his would-be bride um, was they, they were racing down the beach, and they got to a spot where he had made a heart out of shells And then he asked her the question there. And after he proposed, they didn't stop running? Like they had a little moment, they took pictures, and then they took off running again together? Come on. That's what it is. Not the desire to be satisfied just by the passion of sex, but to pursue something with another totally beyond ourselves. That's it. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. They desire to look at God, not just at each other. Okay, to our desire for control. Again, this one is like really. This one is really about control, though. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And I think this also. You know, we should also say that this speaks to our desire for, for violence. We want. We want things to be meted out, um, by by power. And God tells us no, that that's not the way. And we can think of this um, in the in the kind of peace that the saints offer. Like, how many times have you gone? Uh, To see something that was relevant in the life of a saint i had gone to a shrine and just experienced an overwhelming sense of peace in that place, regardless of how pretty it was or not. Like Some of these places in Europe are just ghastly. Like, why do they build such horrible modern things? Anyway, they didn't ask me. Um, But they're still filled with a sense of peace there because they were marked by the holiness of the saint who was happy to throw his or herself just in the feet of God and to surrender it all. OK, and finally, blessed are they who suffer persecution for justice's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is, our, this is, about, um, this is about acceptance. This is about accepting God's will, suffering persecution for justice's sake, um, knowing that this will be the pattern of life until we arrive at the kingdom. OK, what does all this do? Living the Beatitudes, it shapes us it molds us so that we become other Christ, and in so doing, enter the Trinity. OK, so in, in the moments that remain in our talk here, this, this is what I want to really drive home. OK, having the powers of knowing and love are so important because it's by this knowledge especially and love in a secondary way, commanded by knowledge, that we become made into other Christ. God's grace comes through us, and that's how we get into the Trinity. So we were talking, what was God doing before he created the world? Knowing and loving himself. It's a very exclusive club. Only three persons. (laughs) And nobody else has a ticket. You're in if you're the Father, you're in if you're the Son, and you're in if you're the Holy Spirit. Well, crap, I'm not any of those things. (laughs) So how am I getting in? You're getting in because you're being conformed to the Son by knowledge and love. Another Sistine Chapel story. This one's really fun. So I happened to be in Rome with my parents. We were on our way to my cousin's wedding in Bavaria, which I know just sounds ridiculous, but I guess that's what my family's like. Um, And uh, it was a beautiful wedding. They got married in this Trappist Abbey on the shores of Lake Constance. (laughs) Heart-meltingly beautiful. Um, Yeah, just really amazing. Okay, so I'm with my parents in Rome, and a priest friend calls me and says, hey, I can get you into the Room of Tears. And I said, "Okay, Uh, that sounds like fun. The Room of Tears (laughs) is the place where the pope changes into the White cassock right after he's been elected, right? And it's called the Room of Tears because often the weight of office hits the man in that moment, and he breaks down crying thinking, my God, what do I have to do? I have to be Pope. Um, So I wanted to be in that room because that is the only time, you know, that is as close as I'm ever getting, right? So, uh, okay, so I grab this out-of-date Vatican Museum guide pass. Father Vince probably has one in his room. Saved away from North American college days. Um, so I so I grab one of these out-of-date passes and then I follow his instructions. And to get there we run like through the back way. I'm going the wrong way through all these things, and you know, Italian security guards are yelling at me, and then I'm saying like back the you know, the three phrases I know in Italian and showing up my old pass, which they're not really looking at, and they're like, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> so so we run like all the way back through the Vatican Museums, it takes like twenty minutes to get in this way. okay. so then we sneak in the back of the Sistine Chapel, and then we do the most ridiculous thing I've ever done, which is we walked right up to the panel of the Last Judgment, and I hit a little doorbell in the wall. (laughs) And then this door opened in the panel in the Last Judgment, and we went in. It was so cool. (laughs) Um, So why why did all of those people let me go the back? Well, because. Unbeknownst to me, this priest friend had called and had arranged it. So they expected me, and they knew that I was on a list. And so when they hit the button, uh, I was expected to be there. When we are conformed to Christ, we have a claim on entering into the Trinity. He's our way in. We belong there. We're not an outsider, but we only belong there because we look like Christ. Uh, and he's how, he's how we get to participate in this knowing and loving. As human beings, we have a desire for this. We have a desire for heaven. I was chatting with a few people before the talk about the show, The Good Place. Have any of you seen it? It's sort of fun. I would recommend it. I've only seen a couple of episodes, but it's, it's interesting philosophically. They clearly did their homework. But it speaks to our human desire, which is we want to be in the place where our tears will be wiped away and our suffering will be ended, where we, where we live in this infinite balance of knowing and loving, where there is no pain, where there's no sorrow. Um, And despite that being completely beyond us, our our heart longs for it. Our hearts long for it. We thirst for this homeland. Uh, The Lord teaches us how to be conformed to him by means of the Beatitudes to shape our heart after, you know, in the fashion of, because we have these perfect faculties of knowing and loving, that we might be more perfect images of him and belong there and find ourselves there for all eternity by way of conclusion, the girl who didn't know what the Sistine Chapel was (laughs) expressed a sort of suffering in our age, not knowing that she was made in the image or likeness of God, presumably. She didn't know what the Sistine Chapel was. She didn't know God was pursuing her with the force of the outstretched finger as God was pursuing Adam in the creation. The problem is that we forget that this is not our homeland, that life on this side of eternity is not where we ultimately belong. Walker Percy talks about this mystery in one of his marvelous works. And he suggests that to be a castaway is to be in a grave predicament. But a castaway can't ever pretend that he's at home on the island. Because if he starts pretending he's at home, then he will forget where he belongs, and he will despair. The worst of all despairs, says Walker Percy, is to imagine one is at home when one is really homeless. (laughs) You see, this life is not our home. We long for our heavenly home, made in the image of our creator, who will welcome us someday into the great beyond, the great communion of love, that exchange of knowing and loving, which is the Trinity. Let us pray that it be so.